What's the risk of the Great Salt Lake drying up? And how is Client Earth challenging European countries right now? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Thursday, June 9th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some climate events. More rains are expected to continue in China, Taiwan, and Japan, with meteorologists issuing flood warnings to the region. Last week, record-breaking rainfall resulted in flooding and landslides that killed at least 15 people in China. In Utah, the Great Salt Lake has already dried up by two-thirds compared to its levels in the 80s, and this could become a huge problem for people who live around it. Unlike most lakes, this is not due to a loss of water supply, but rather it could become poisonous. A lower water level means that the lake could sometimes contain high levels of arsenic that winds could pick up and bring to three-fourths of the Utah population. The lake drying up would also kill ski tourism, ecosystems, and magnesium and other mineral mining. This risk has been enough to scare Republican lawmaker Timothy Hawks, who says, quote, This is not just fear-mongering. This could actually happen. Last summer, the Great Salt Lake hit its lowest level on record. Now on to a climate study. One of the main reasons why people don't like wind farms is because they think having one installed near them would decrease their property's value. This belief is particularly common in the rural U.S., where wind farms are most likely to be set up. And it has resulted in communities protesting projects away, slowing the clean energy transition. Research on this topic shows that there's no evidence to suggest that property values went down when wind farms were added. And now a new study published in the journal Energy Policy found that wind farms specifically in the rural U.S. provide jobs to the area and income for local landlords. It also increased the demand for local goods and services in the area. And there's even evidence that the increase in property taxes being paid as a result of these installations in rural areas leads to benefits such as increased school spending by local governments. The study observed almost 3,000 U.S. counties from 1995 to 2018, of which 465 installed wind turbines during that time. The study found that counties that built wind turbines saw an average increase in per capita income of 5% and a per capita gross GDP of 6.5% relative to average trends seen by counties without wind turbines. They also found a 2.6% increase in local property values compared to houses not near turbines. Generally, these value increases happened over the span of eight years after the turbine was built. Areas were also more positively impacted the greater the wind farm was. The GDP boost was three times higher in rural areas than in urban settings. Wow. Time for some climate victories. India loosened rules so now energy users can access other energy sources outside local distributors for fewer surcharges. The government also made the approval process quicker and now transitions can be made for as little as 100 kilowatts, where the option was previously only allowed for customers looking for 1 megawatt or more. This could encourage larger power users to switch away from coal faster, as more companies seek clean energy to reach their own sustainability goals. Maybe this will encourage the larger power producers to switch faster to clean energy to supply that demand. Currently, 70% of India's power supply runs on coal. In Europe, the law firm Client Earth is getting creative at challenging the EU's support for gas pipelines. 
It's using a new legal option called an internal review, which was opened up to environmental defenders in October 2021. It allows groups or individuals to challenge the EU on decisions that break the climate law it created in June 2021. This new legal avenue was created by Client Earth's long legal battle. So now the firm is using it to make the EU question its decision to put fossil gas on the list of projects of common interest with clean energy sources. Funding is encouraged to go towards PCI energy sources. Here's how Client Earth plans to lay out its case. 1. Including gas in the PCI category is inconsistent with reaching EU emissions targets set out by the law. 2. The EU must conduct more accurate emissions cost-benefit analysis because the EU didn't include methane in its assessment. Methane is 82 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. The EU plans to quit emitting methane by 2035. 3. Investing in gas infrastructure locks the EU into emitting for longer, which is hypocritical to EU's politicians constantly saying they want to get off gas. The EU has a goal of getting off gas by 2050. The European Commission has 22 weeks to reply to Klein Earth's legal challenge. Meanwhile, Germany introduced a new bill to accelerate wind power expansion. Germany plans to have 80% of its energy supply come from clean energy by 2030, with the goal of increasing its onshore wind capacity by 115 gigawatts, which is about equivalent to installing 38 nuclear plants. Right now, only 0.8% of German land is designated for wind turbines, and only 0.5% is actually being used. The new draft legislation would get that number up to 2%, requiring a certain amount of land in each state to be used for wind farms. Previously, Germany was trying to get the states to do this voluntarily, but it hasn't worked. While the legislation would make it mandatory, states could trade allocations where one state exceeds and another falls a bit short. Now back to Klein Earth, which represented a case by the environmental charity Friends of the Earth and the legal campaign group Good Law Project against the UK government today in high court. The groups are claiming the UK's current net zero strategy is irresponsible and unlawful by omitting vital details and not being properly followed. This is the first time the UK is being legally challenged for its net zero strategy, which was made official in October. The strategy calls for the UK to fully drop emissions compared to 1990 levels by 2050. I have a few headlines that fit in a gray space for me. Like, they're not climate victories or fails. The first one is, the EU Parliament voted on several key climate proposals for a larger law today, ending in mixed and surprising results. They voted against reforming the carbon market, something many thought they'd pass. This shows that there's more division in the parliament than previously thought. The Green and Socialist lawmakers rejected amendments that conservatives wanted to make to the market, amendments conservatives used to make the plan less ambitious. This postpones voting on two related climate proposals, and so it set back the timeline for the climate law, which lawmakers want to be finalized by the end of this year to go into effect in 2023. The Parliament did vote to ban new fossil fuel cars from being sold in the EU starting in 2035. Passenger vehicle emissions currently account for 12% of EU emissions and about half of EU's transportation emissions. In the US, the UK-based oil giant Shell announced it would offer better access to renewable energy to Texans on Tuesday. 
It will also give electric vehicles free charging at night when electricity demand is lower. Shell plans to expand its services to other eastern and southern states soon, too. This is one of several examples of European oil companies like BP and Total Energies moving faster on clean energy than American oil companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil. While the share in clean energy in European oil companies' portfolios is still quite small, it's there and slowly growing. U.S. companies haven't budged much past looking into biofuels and carbon capture technology. Now that being said, all fossil fuel companies have lied to the public about climate change for decades before it was public knowledge, and all of them have scored record profits on the Russian-Ukrainian war. And all of them have consistently greenwashed themselves. This is why fossil fuel companies adding more clean energy to their portfolios, short of 100% switching to clean energy, will always be a gray space for me and never fully a climate victory. Now on to some climate fails. Yesterday, I talked about how Australia's new prime minister wants all of Australia's coal mines to open to help tackle the energy crisis. This was an ethical U-turn from how the administration presented itself during the election. Well, now the think tank Ember reports that emissions produced by Australia's coal mines could be twice as high as official figures show. Ember simply compared the Australian's government figures with the International Energy Agency's coal mine emissions figures. The EIA had recently upped its estimate for how much methane Australia's coal mines emit by 59% after reviewing satellite data of the Bowen Basin in Queensland. This new information makes all of Australia's coal mines going online more harmful to the climate than all cars currently driving on the country's roads. Not only does this new information make Prime Minister Albanese's latest announcement particularly bad, but the study also points out that the coal plant's methane emissions could harm trade relationships with countries like Japan and South Korea. Unlike Australia, those countries signed a pledge during the last UN climate conference, COP26 in November, to drop methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Ember suggests Australia starts by tracking its methane emissions better and requires plants to capture methane for use banning venting it into the atmosphere. In the U.S., Biden's getting backlash from solar panel makers on his new domestic solar plan that involves removing all solar tariffs for two years and helping the domestic manufacturing sector ramp up. The problem is Biden has limited access to funds to actually help restart the industry. He has less than half a billion to split between this issue and other issues like alleviating the baby formula crisis and buying military drones. Basically, it would only be enough to open a few new factories at most. It's up to the stalled Congress to grant more money to these efforts. And today, we'll end with a chemical news story. Colorado became the first state to ban PFAS in fracking fluids. PFAS, or forever chemicals, are literally everywhere, from nonstick pans to waterproof jackets to firefighting foam. They get into our waterways and have been linked to a host of health problems, including cancer, liver problems, infertility, and an increased risk of asthma and thyroid disease. PFAS is also in fracking fluids, or liquid that's shot at high pressure against rocks to access oil and gas reserves underground. The EPA approved the use of these chemicals in 2011, despite health concerns. We'll have to see if any states will follow Colorado's lead, but many states allow oil companies to keep what chemicals they use in fracking fluid confidential. And that was your climate news for Thursday, June 9th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. 
Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.